Hey, Jay, how many levels of mutant power are there anyway? In the 616? Ooh, let's see. They've never been very consistently defined, but officially there's Alpha, Beta, Epsilon Beta, Omega, and Beyond Omega. Terms like Class 1 and Level 10 also get, a, get thrown around, but you know, less frequently. Okay, so I assume Beyond Omega would be the most powerful, right? Yeah, although if you open things up to the multiverse in general, that would have to be Omicron. What can an Omicron-level mutant do? Everything. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we're here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 363 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to, actually, the X-Men. That's right, we have three comics about the X-Men, specifically today. Are you sure it's not still Onslaught? I keep wondering. I mean, you know, Onslaught is referenced, but that's going to happen basically constantly. Uh, but yeah, there are just so many different spinoff teams, which is awesome. I love that about the X-Universe. But it's still kind of refreshing when we've had a great big event and a bunch of miniseries, and we just get to talk about the X-Men. You say that like all the other teams don't show up in one of the issues that we're covering today. Well, okay, yes, but, you know, they're, they're playing baseball, so that's, that's fair. That's different rules. Baseball rules, specifically. You know, I was on a Little League team for, like, one, uh, semester? Whatever you call it. When I was really little. Season? Season. Okay, there we go. Uh, and as you can probably tell, I didn't really know how it worked. I think everyone just assumed that as a young boy in the mid to late 1980s, I knew how to baseball. I did not, so I was terrible. The main thing I remember is uh, chewing a lot of Big League Chew, which is this chewing gum sort of modeled after chewing tobacco, but it had a really good grape flavor that I liked when I was a kid. And um, my uh, teammates, not making fun of me very much for being terrible, they put me very far away out in uh, one of the fields, maybe maybe left field. That was probably for the best. I don't miss that. I don't miss that at all. That's valid. Standing in a field wearing a glove and feeling vaguely confused is not actually a wildly fun activity. And also, like, way too much of a microcosm for life in general, you know? I do definitely do a lot of standing out in fields looking confused. Mm, fair enough. Daily, daily basis, really. <laughs> yup. Uh, well, the X-Men, uh, they are actually a little less confused than they often are because we are now in the wake of a great big event and things are, I don't know, mostly stable. So, Jay, what happened previously on X-Men? All right, so Onslaught is over. Onslaught, the event is over. Onslaught, the villain, has been defeated. And Professor X, the founder and father figure of the X-Men, and the mind from whose dark side Onslaught sprang, or half of Onslaught sprang, has been arrested and then disappeared from federal custody. The X-Men are doing their best to regroup and recoup, recuperate that is, but some of them are having harder times than others. Now, way, way back during one of, maybe actually during the first X-Men crossover event, the Mutant Massacre, Warren Kenneth Worthington III, that's Angel, now Archangel, lost his wings after being seriously injured, and he was given new razor-sharp metal wings by Apocalypse, who turned him into the Horseman of Death. 
Those metal wings came with blue skin and a dark side, and Warren has been as much an angst angel as an archangel ever since. Recently, though, his girlfriend Psylocke, herself somewhat transformed by some mystical nonsense following her own serious injury, has found him missing, leaving nothing but a single feather behind. Speaking of the mutant massacre, the Morlocks were a group of sewer-dwelling mutants who Storm murdered her way into leading, well, almost murdered, a number of years ago. They were largely killed by the Marauders, and Storm's been pretty guilty ever since. And from one white-haired mutant to the next, Magneto had his mind erased by Professor X some years ago, and shortly after that seemed to have died. But recently, Joseph, who appears to be a younger, longer-haired, and significantly more amnesiac version of Magneto, has popped up and is now hanging out with the X-Men, hoping to atone for past sins he can't remember. Much to the delight of Magneto's one-time girlfriend, Rogue, and much to the grumpiness of Rogue's on-and-off boyfriend, Gambit. Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 338, A Hope Reborn, A Past Reclaimed. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera and Salvador Larocca, inked by Tim Townsend and Vince Russell, colored by Steve Bucciolato and Team Buse, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Colia Fuchs. So, Salvador Larocca, that's an artist that we're going to become very, very familiar with. He does a ton of X-Men stuff. I most know him from Extreme X-Men, which Chris Claremont will write a number of years after this, which is, eh, his work's okay in there. Everyone looks a little samey. Yeah, I think the coloring on that series does his line art no favors either. Agreed, yeah. It's just all a sort of washed out visually. It's very shiny. But Salvador LaRocca more recently has been doing the art for Darth Vader here and there. Uh, I have taken it upon myself, despite already drowning in X-Men, to read all of the newly canonical Marvel Star Wars comics. Uh, they're they're very, very good, it turns out. We have, like, you know, Kieran Gillen and Cy Spurrier and Jason Aaron and Charles Soule and lots of other writers. Uh, but, uh, yeah, LaRocca does a great, great job on that first Vader series. Good. Oh, to go, going back to a previous episode of ours, does would, would he be the person with whom we could canonically establish the state of Darth Vader's dick? Uh, you know, as an artist drawing a Darth Vader ongoing series, I feel like he would have been professionally obligated to consider that. Because I know you were concerned. I mean, there's a lot to be concerned about. Jeez. I mean, how much there is to be concerned about remains to be known, as, as, we, as we've established. Fair point. Fair point. Anyway, as for this issue, we get a gloriously striking opening page. And this one's definitely by Joe Matarera. That is Angel curled up in agony with his metal wing shattering around him. And he's very quickly joined in his pain by Ozymandias. Jay, do you remember Ozymandias? He was Apocalypse's personal assistant. Yeah, he's ancient, he's made of stone, he can see the future by carving it into stuff. Oh, he was the guy who spent spent centuries carving all of his visions into a massive pillar that he then self-destructed, right? That's the one. Well, he just randomly shows up here, speaking cryptically about how Apocalypse was right about Warren, that Warren is a survivor, and that Apocalypse's plans for Warren are not yet done. And I do continue to love Ozymandias' generically archaic font and his stone-colored speech bubbles. Like, I'm not entirely sure how that works, but it's very distinctive and it's fun. Now, something I'm uncertain on here, and you may have opinions, is whether this is actual Ozymandias or an Ozymandias hallucination. 
I don't know. I mean, we do know that Warren's mind was definitely messed with by Apocalypse all those years ago, but he's done so much work to get past all of that. At the same time, with a new transformation, you know, maybe there's some Ozymandias just sort of built into Warren's Archangel death programming. Good, good question. Either way, Warren is in agony, you know, more and more, and suddenly it becomes clear what's happening as feathered wings burst out, casting away the last of his metal wings. And the art here is great. There are these beautiful close-ups of Warren's wide eyes and his clenching fist just really gets across the, the sheer pain that he's in. And as the wings burst forth from underneath the metal, there's a close-up of just tears running down his face like he's some kind of goddamn anime character. But it works. I mean, Joe Matarera has such a mangarific style anyway that that kind of, like, emotional intensity, that's not out of place here. People do so, cry. Like, that's a thing that happens. Well, right, but he's got almost those, like, rivers of tears coming down. Maybe that's part of what Apocalypse did also. He just, he caused Warren to be a, a cartoon character with equivalent expressional semiotics? Yeah, whenever Warren gets angry, he has, like, that big pulsing vein hovering over his forehead. Mm. So this is interesting, because throughout this this scene of just pain and almost body horror, there's no blood. There are these red borders drawn around the wings and the shards that have broken off of the wings, but no actual blood. I don't know. What's your take on this, Jay? Like, do you think that having some minor gore, I guess, having some actual bloodshed would make this more effective or does this work better? No, but I think making it actually body horror would have. I I mean, you describe it as body horror, but there's very, very little of it that's actually shown. We really just see that Warren is in distress. I guess that's true. Yeah. And when his wings do burst forth, they're like, fine. They're just underneath the the metal, and it's it's totally okay. He is still blue, I should point out. He's going to be blue for quite a long time. I think until Chuck Austin's run, when it yep. turns out he's descended from literal angels? No, um, he, he, he gets unblued by Black Tom somehow. Well, back more centrally to the X-Men's locales, in the Danger Room, Joseph is with Jean watching an elaborate hologram of Magneto fighting the Silver Age X-Men. And well, he's, Magneto he's specifically in, watch he's specifically watching them in the Cape Citadel fight, isn't he? I think so, from from the very first issue of X-Men. And in this hologram, Magneto has these tiny pupils and these bloodshot eyes with these furiously clenched teeth. It's actually kind of reminiscent of uh, those extreme facial expressions and uh, contortions Warren was going through. But Magneto just looks like so, so evil. It's wonderful. Well, he is. He's cartoonishly evil in this in this scene and, and was at this point in continuity. And Joseph is studying all of this and trying to recognize some trace of himself in this, 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 this guy who's basically you know, writing Surrender Dorothy with iron filings in the sky and coming after the X-Men and nukes and generally being, well, Silver Age Magneto and Trion trying to dig up in himself some trace of memory of this and just coming up completely blank on both fronts. Suddenly, I am very nostalgic for our very first episode in, what was it, April of 2014, I think? We were so young. We were so young. And Magneto could do anything— Oh my god, we're coming up on eight years. Weird, right? I mean, awesome, but weird. That's really weird. Right? 
Anyway, Joseph is still worried about repeating this past that he doesn't remember, and he's confused as to why the X-Men would accept him after all of the evil, evil, evil that his past self apparently did. But Gambit's got a simple explanation. Don't go getting all excited, mon ami. These people even accepted me. That should tell you what a poor judge of character they are. They'll take anyone with a phonetic accent. <laughs> Quicksilver, who is visiting the X-Men, not really having much to do uh, outside of his own ongoing series after the Avengers disappeared, agrees, basically saying, hey, Professor X founded this whole place on the belief that nobody was ever beyond redemption. And he refers to Joseph as father. I mean, remember, Quicksilver not only is the son of Magneto, well, at this point in continuity, but himself was one of the first villains the X-Men faced on the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. It's the on-again, off-again son of Magneto. Pretty much, yeah. Psylocke comes through the wall with some news, though. That feather that she found in X-Men number 57 uh, is kind of suspicious, and Warren is kind of missing. Whoa, 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 whoa. Through the wall? Oh, yeah, but not like Shadowcat style. More like a mix of Shadowcat and Nightcrawler, I guess. She apparently can teleport through shadows. She can go into a shadow in one place and come out of a different shadow in another place, which A, is awesome, and B, is new since all that weirdness with the Crimson Dawn, the mystical elixir from another dimension that healed her after Sabretooth put her insides on her outside. She also got a rad eye tattoo and a less rad, very cold personality. How does this work logistically? Does the shadow have to be, like, large enough for her to physically move through, or can she teleport through, like, teeny shadows? Oh, man, that's a good question. Like, if it's a really small shadow, can she just sort of put one hand through and wave, or just, like, hold her eye up to it like it's a keyhole, or just, like, flick her tongue in and out of the shadow like some freaky snake or lizard? Oh, God, creepy. Can you imagine getting licked by a shadow? Ugh, jeez, I, I, I kind of can, actually. I, I don't think I like it. Yeah, the logistics of this just fascinate me, because there's the shadow size issue, but there's also stuff like where she could teleport would be mediated by time of day. Uh, yeah, that's that's very true. I'm, I'm trying to remember, was it Full Metal Alchemist that had somebody who could do evil stuff with shadows, and so the people fighting that person had to, like, have a lot of light so there weren't any shadows? I don't remember, it was something. But these powers, I feel like if we were regular readers of The New Warriors, we might know more about them. Because if I recall correctly, the character's silhouette actually has very similar powers. I will take your word for that. New Warriors, I've only read some of it, but it's actually really good. I recommend it. No, I've heard only good things about it. I'm just also a full-time grad student at the moment. Okay, that's a very reasonable excuse. I really like the way that Joe Matarera draws Psylocke at this point. Her movements are clearly not quite human. Like, she just sort of effortlessly leaps sideways out of the shadow when she comes in and lands in this deep, insect-like crouch. It really works. I love the subsequent panel, where it's very clear that Storm is just supposed to be hovering, but where she's posed so it looks like she's actually, like, tackle-pouncing on Psylocke from behind while they're just having this very casual conversation. Oh man, well, Psylocke was all crouched down. Maybe she was actually being more, more feline, and Storm wants to play kitty cats. Okay. Cats would definitely lick people through shadows. Oh, they totally would. I'm pretty sure they do, actually. They do a lot of, like, reaching through shadows to bat at things, too. Mm-hmm. God, I'm really glad cats don't have those powers. Do cats have those powers? Cats are mysterious. Only the worst cats. Mm. Well done, worst cats. Yeah. So the X-Men follow Cerebro's signal to try to find Warren, and they end up at a Brooklyn church, which is 
on fire. And we learn from the captions that Angel was drawn here for some reason right after his wings came back. To rescue someone, or he did rescue someone. And the someone he rescued was a priest, but he didn't, he wasn't able to get in time to the guy who was confessing. Fortunately, that guy is fireproof and also the cause of the fire. That is Pyro, formerly of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Right. Apparently, Pyro came here because he wanted to warn them about her. But, like, why go to confession for that? Like, that's that's just not what priests are for. I mean, forgive me, Father, for I need to ask you to order me a pizza? Like, no, priests can't just tell things to whoever. The whole point is that they don't. Maybe it's like when you run out to the store to get one specific thing and then you realize you need something else and there's a drugstore just, like, half a block away, so you end up running the other errand first. Like, Pyro was on his way to warn the X-Men about something, and then he remembered that he'd done a lot of really bad stuff, so he decided to go confess. And there was a church right there. Oh, crap, and I was going to pick up some milk, but then I remembered I did a lot of crimes and murder for years. Whoops. Yeah, exactly. So, after the X-Men, especially Joseph, who Logan has to tell to chill, beat Pyro up for a bit, they realize that, no, 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 he's not being evil, his powers are just out of control, because he's got the legacy virus, the Marvel Universe's 90s allegory for AIDS. So Pyro's legacy infection was teased way back in September 1993 in X-Men Unlimited number two. Wow. Right? Pyro will finally die in cable number 87 in November 2000. Seven freaking years later, and we thought Generation X plots progressed slowly, but that's the thing with the legacy virus. Like, it lasts for a long time— the writers occasionally forget it's a thing, or forget it's as big of a thing as it is, and then eventually it just sort of fizzles out when Colossus explodes to destroy the virus. Anyway, here Pyro says some more cryptic shit about them and her, which we we don't actually ever find out who he's trying to warn them about. It might be Mystique, because Pyro's going to work for her later in X-Factor, But it's really, really unclear. And before Pyro has a chance to explain, his buddy Avalanche gently carries him away by burying him in stone. Which is, you know, fine, because Avalanche. That's how Avalanche does stuff. The priest does tell the X-Men that Pyro was at least at peace with himself, and the newly featherly winged angel wonders if he can ever be, or if this is just Apocalypse fucking with him more. But in fact, Angel's going to have feathered wings going forward for a really, really long time. I mean, technically, even until the present day, although eventually he'll get two forms. He'll have the Angel Wings form and the Archangel Metal Wings Dark Evil form. Uh, Monet actually will end up uh, getting the same kind of deal going on with Penance. And in fact, that's part of why, in addition to being rich, they're both main characters of the X-Corp miniseries. He's going to go off with Psylocke again from here, and they're going to end up in more Crimson Dawn stuff, although she will briefly swing by the uh, Kiss comic on the way there. We're going to talk about that at some point, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, in San Diego, on Graydon Creed's campaign trail, oh boy, this fucking guy. Jay, would you mind? Well, Graydon Creed is the son of Sabretooth, Victor Creed, and Mystique. He is human. He is an extreme anti-mutant bigot. He is currently running for president of the United States while secretly also running the terrorist group Friends of Humanity, and he's a great big asshole. He is. 
But you know who's awesome and has a cameo? Yes, I do. Somebody who's an asshole who you like way more, J. Jonah Jameson. I'm talking about you blasted wolves in sheep's clothing, trying to win an election by playing on people's fear of mutants. JJJ talks about how free speech requires free thought, and how Creed's fear-mongering leads to the opposite of that. He also obliquely compares Creed to Hitler, which, you know, fair enough. Like, there's Godwin's Law, and then sometimes, if the shoe fits. Yeah, Godwin's Law doesn't apply to accurate comparisons, and I don't think it applies to circumstances off the internet either. Oh, that's true, that's true. Also here is Drake Roberts, which is the truly awful alias of Robert Bobby Drake, Iceman. Yeah, he is a member of Creed's campaign team. He is here undercover spying for the X-Men. Well, that's um, definitely a tricky, tricky alias. It's almost as good as Samson Guthrie. That's Guthrie with a Y. Because, yeah, Cannonball is also undercover on the campaign in addition to Iceman. God damn it, people! There are so many better ways to do aliases. Like, perhaps ones that are not just the equivalent of replacing the letter I with the number one in your password. Hello, we're Miles Stokes with a Z and Ed Jaybert. And we Y-splain the Y-men, I guess. No, no, we just explain the X-men. Ah, like EX. Yeah. With no dash. Right. Well done, us. Totally different podcast. That brings us to X-Men number 58, Testament. Written by Scott Lobdell and Ralph Macchio, penciled by Bernard Chang, inked by John Holdridge, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Now, Bernard Chang does the New Mutants Truth or Death miniseries that I'm excited to talk about probably before too very long. He also does the first two issues of Children of the Atom. That's Vita Ayala's series from not too long ago. Chang's got a cool style. It's clean. It's simple. The action is very easy to follow. It's just, it's just appealing. It's just soothing. It's cartoony in a way that reminds me a lot of 90s DC animation. Yeah, and I think that's really helped by the sharp and thick inks in this uh, issue by Sean Holdridge, and the sort of two-tone, almost flat color that gives everything a cell-shaded look. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, in this genuinely appealing art, Storm goes alone into the Morlock Tunnels because it is the anniversary of the Mutant Massacre. We talked a little bit in the previously on section, but yeah, Storm was the leader of the Morlocks when most of them got killed, and she feels pretty bad about that. Which, you know... She was nominally their leader. She didn't actually do much leading. Right, which makes me think that feeling guilty is is somewhat reasonable. Yeah. But Storm, like, dude, the last time you headed to the Morlock Tunnels, you were sucked into a horrible alternate universe run by Mikhail Rasputin. So I guess good on you for coming back. Although I guess that was during the Ceremony of Light, which is a very different annual tradition involving the Morlock Tunnels. It's kind of like how some couples have their dating anniversary and their, their wedding anniversary, uh, except with... Horrible things involving death. Well, the last official anniversary of the Mutant Massacre was Uncanny X-Men 325, which was about a year's worth of comics ago, and Storm memorialized it on that occasion by ripping out one of Marrow's hearts. I love that sentence you just said. But Storm is not the first X-Man down here, because Gambit is already at the mass gravesite lighting candles. Wait a minute, why is there a gravesite? Thor burned all the dead Morlocks in his tie-in to the Mutant Massacre years and years ago. They're not necessarily buried there, they might just be memorial markers. That's true, they are all very close together, so it's probably either that or maybe they're just all buried 
vertically squeezed up next to each other, which is both gross and less likely. You know what else is there? What's that? Gambit. Right. And Storm tells Gambit why she's there, and and says, But you were not an X-Man at the time. You did not even know about this community. Why then, my friend, are you here? I... I read about it into computer files. When we were trying to put them back together after Xavier left, I just felt badly. That's all. I just came to pay my respects. Yes, I see. Remy, would you excuse me? You know, although there was ultimately nothing I could have done to save the Morlocks from slaughter, I have always felt ultimately responsible for their tragic fate. And there's a close-up of Gambit half behind a stone arch as he stares after her, and then that same stone arch as he's gone in the next panel. Ultimately responsible is the phrase that is ringing through his head. And this is an excellent setup for what we're soon going to find about Remy's dark secret that's been teased for over a year at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and having this twist in Storm and Gambit's relationship, in this friendship that is basically the origin of his presence in the X-Men, that's a good call. That's smart plotting. So then we go to Rogue, who sleeps with the TV on, and specifically sleeps with the TV on soap operas, which I kind of love. Yup. And there's a whisper from her bedroom window as the TV gets that kind of distortion that old CRT TVs used to get when a magnet was nearby, which is such a nice touch for sort of pre-announcing Magneto, which is to say, Joseph. Yeah, Joseph is here, waking Rogue up in the middle of the goddamn night and disrupting her sleep soap operas to tell her that he thinks he's figured out a way for her to be able to safely touch people. Intriguing. Now, of course, Magneto in the Age of Apocalypse was able to figure that out for Rogue, and they got married and they had a kid together. And in the 616, when Rogue was in the Savage Land with pre-de-aging Magneto, or I guess Magneto that was only de-aged once, not twice. Freaking Magneto. Pre-Joseph Magneto. Pre-Joseph Magneto. And they had a somewhat physical relationship at that time as well. So, sure, this makes sense. Sorry, now I'm thinking about a soap opera called Touched by a Magnet. (laughs) Maybe that's what she's watching. Probably. Outside, speaking of soap operas, Wolverine is listening to Bishop. Because Bishop doesn't know what he's supposed to do with himself now that his big mission is over. I mean, part of why he's in the present day of the Marvel Universe, by which I mean the mid-90s, was to figure out who the X-Trader was and to stop them from killing the X-Men. And that has now happened. The X-Trader was Onslaught, and Bishop helped make sure the X-Men weren't killed by him. But, sorry, Lucas, because the comics often won't really know either. This bit is sort of accidentally meta. Like, we know that Cable was successfully redefined after Strife was defeated and then Apocalypse, but I feel like Bishop never really got past that. I mean... You know, he's going to be great in Marauders, like, now, in the 2020s, and there's always the District X miniseries, but it just seems like Bishop lost his way as a character in between. I don't know that Bishop was ever really centered as a character the way that, for example, Cable was. And I think that's been to his detriment, because it's been—it's a lot harder to redefine a character in a supporting role than it is when their redefinition is really the, the central focus of the comic. 
You know, that's that's a really good point, and I think that's a big part of why. And so while I'm thrilled that Bishop is so awesome these days, it's a little sad that for a while he's just going to kind of fade into the background. Uh, interestingly here, by the way, in this conversation, Bishop looks like Bishop, but Bernard Chang draws Logan as completely normal, non-animalistic, non-feral Logan. Uh, he does, however, get that cool uh, animalistic kind of ragged font, so I think he's at least still supposed to be animalistic. Yeah, I'm not sure. Logan's appearance is drawn pretty inconsistently in this era, and no one's quite sure how much of a nose he even has. Could be worse. Could be the various forms of Onslaught. Ooh. I guess he never really had much of a nose. Would we have known? He always had a mask. Uh, true. I mean, he was that sentinel thing at one point, and I guess he could just use his psychic powers to obscure whatever nose he did have. Maybe he had a giant psychic schnoz, and none of us ever knew. Maybe it was like an anteater nose. Oh yeah, I bet it was. Just all twitching around, you know, looking for ants. Maybe how we saw Onslaught was just how Onslaught wanted to be seen, and he was actually just a large anteater. Just literally an anteater, but with immense psychic powers. Yes. Anyway, Bishop and Wolverine notice Gambit walking by looking distracted, and I really appreciate that when Bishop calls out to Gambit, he calls him my friend. I love their dynamic. I love that they've gone from hating each other to reluctant friendships and now just totally being bros. Yeah, that is really, really lovely, and it's an arc that's happened very organically, too. Freaking great. Like, Iceman and Rogue... Bishop and Gambit, there are so many friendships that I wish comics would remember were such a big deal back in the 90s. Now, Gambit is upset because he has seen Joseph hovering outside, apparently peering into Rogue's window while she sleeps. What's actually happening is that Joseph's waiting outside while she gets dressed so that they can go down to the basement and do whatever they were going to do. Um, but obviously that's that's not clear from the outside. And um, Gambit throws a card to knock Joseph to the ground Joseph explains this plan. Gambit says, well, that's only led to disappointment in the, chat in the past. And Joseph says, yeah, well, no, you're the disappointment. And then they kick each other in the head a lot. Yeah, it's just a physical fight. And Chang does an amazing job of conveying the impact and the damage of this. Like, even if Joseph kicking Gambit across the face has the sound effect bunk, which I find hilarious, like, even so, the way that Chang draws this visibly heavy tread on Joseph's boots and just a trail of blood flying from Gambit's mouth as his head is knocked back, like, it makes it look genuinely brutal. So often physical fights just seem like nothing, you know, like just people sort of bapping each other on the face. But with this, it's like, no, these, these people are doing some damage to each other. Indeed, there is no bapping to be found here. Nope, instead just bunk. Uh, it does escalate into power use as Joseph pulls these sprinkler hoses out of the ground to strangle Gambit, which is pretty great. But it becomes clear, this is not so much about Gambit's jealousy over Rogue. It's actually more about Gambit's anger that Joseph gets to have a fresh start after doing some terrible crimes as Magneto, and Gambit feels like he can't. Now, remember, nobody really knows what Gambit has done, what his actual crimes were. None of the characters do. But Gambit knows, and he knows it's going to bite him in the ass, and he can just see that specter hovering over him and Joseph not having to deal with that. It is subtle, and I appreciate it when we get to see subtlety in an X-Men comic, because that is not terribly frequent. Now, their fight is broken up by Rogue, who shows up and has no patience for any of their excuses, and shames them into reluctantly bonding in the face of her wrath. 
All I see are a couple of grown men wrestling around like two bear cubs. And that don't do nothing for me. Took me a long time to be comfortable knowing I don't need to belong to nobody. In fact, I like it that way. Now, with that fight out of the way, we're back to Graydon Creed, who is being interviewed by our favorite dubiously ethical journalist Trish Tilby on television. Um, She has a talk show now. Bobby Drake, uh, sorry, Drake Roberts, is uh, sickened by Creed's deft defense of himself, talking about these attacks by the liberal media, but he keeps his cover, he keeps his cool, until he's shocked by his own father, his notably bigoted father standing up from the audience to tell Creed off. Who's next? You finish negating mutants, then who do you start on? Anybody else that's different? Anybody, anybody else you consider a problem? A threat? While you're at it, why don't you get rid of the elderly, cut off welfare mothers, or stop medical treatment to the sick and dying? Those mutants you want to get rid of, they're somebody's sons or daughters, someone's family. But that means nothing to you, so long as you win your precious election. They're people. You have to treat them like people. Well, damn. I mean, maybe sometimes the tide doesn't take the castle. This is great. I love that we get this character who's been such a shit to his son, so bigoted in so many ways, but this time when there's this kind of oppression going on around him, it becomes personal. He realizes the stakes. He actually sees mutants, not just as this amorphous threat, but as people, because one of them is his son. Meanwhile, J. Jonah Jameson is still looking into Creed, although um, now he's doing it from home. I guess we're getting our wish that J. Jonah Jameson is in every issue. Like, Graydon Creed is terrible, but if he is the price we have to pay for more of old Brushhead, I think I feel okay about this. Yeah, yeah, same. Alas, as J.J.J.'s presumably extremely patient wife tells him to come to bed, he is being yelled at from a roof by, hey, it's Havoc, it's Alex Summers. There are some things you're better off not knowing, Jameson. Believe me, you keep this up and soon, bang, bang, you'll cry havoc. What does that even mean? Well, what it means is we know he's really a villain now because he's making wordplay based on his own name. Yeah, but Spider-Man does that. Uh, true, true, but, uh, I don't know, he's, he's someone special. No, I mean, Mr. Sinister does it, Apocalypse does it. I guess. He's so bad at it, though. I mean, it's Alex. Oh, buddy, go back to grad school. And that brings us to our final issue of the episode. X-Men Annual 1996, One Day at the Mansion. Written by Larry Hama, penciled by Roberto Flores and Anthony Castrillo, inked by Nathan Messengel and Al Milgram, colored by Paul Becton, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. This issue is not on Marvel Unlimited, which is kind of a shame. I mean, I think we had different takes on it, but but I really liked it. But, like, there's not even a placeholder page saying it's not available digitally. And this is actually the case for a lot of annuals. They are just organized terribly. Sometimes it's a series of numerical ones, like one through three, but then the next one will just be shown by its year, and sometimes it's the year and the title and the number one of that. Like, Marvel, I get that numbering with annuals has been inconsistent, but for Marvel Unlimited, it's kind of your job to help people actually find stuff. 
Well, apparently not if they use the web view because that's never really worked right. But, you know, at least in the mobile view. Yeah, at this point, I just search for things in Google and then add marvel.com to the end of the, the string. Yeah, although for annuals, that still doesn't work half the time. Yeah, it kept on trying to send me to X-Man. Oh, no, we, we very specifically do not cover that, Marvel Unlimited. Well, anyway, even steady hitters sometimes miss, as Larry Hama unfortunately demonstrates here. This issue has a lot of heart, but it also has a very high ratio of heart to quality. There is that, and I think that's part of why it worked for me, because if something has heart, I almost don't care about its flaws. Like, I'll, I'll note them, I'll talk about them, but the heart just just encompasses everything. I gotta say, the writing, the writing is, is inconsistent on this issue. The art is consistently pretty terrible. It is not amazing it's it's true and i think part of that is just that it goes back and forth between these two artists like to their credit they blend in mostly well together it's hard to tell who's drawing which page but it just feels kind of sloppy and rushed a lot of the time very um speaking of things that are sloppy and rushed a lot is going on here this is a baseball issue and a swing pool issue and a barbecue issue and a rogue sentinel issue i mean okay the first three at least go together like it's a summer fun time also there's a robot um, yeah, so we, we start with baseball, and um, everyone's here, all of the members of X-Men, Generation X, and X-Force, so I guess not everyone, but all, all, of, all of the U.S. non-government teams are here. All the school-ish based teams. Right, and they have been, they have been redistributed onto a couple baseball teams with Cable at the, as the umpire, which seems slightly iffy considering that he's the leader of one of the teams whose members are playing here, but I guess on the other hand they're divided between the two teams. There, there is that. Although Cable is famously not impartial when it comes to his uh, his team members, I mean that's come up before. That's true. If they break the rules of baseball, he'll lock them in a room and interrogate them. Put them in a straitjacket. So I got curious because you know the X Men playing baseball together, it's a it's a bit of a trope, and so I was curious how often it actually happens. And all the examples I found follow. Uncanny X-Men 110, Uncanny X-Men Annual 7, Uncanny X-Men 201, Adjectiveless X-Men number 4, Uncanny number 325, which also has Generation X like this does, but not X-Force, Uncanny number 444, which has art by Alan Davis and is therefore inherently slightly better, X-Men Second Coming number 2, Extraordinary X-Men 20, X-Men Gold number 1, Worst X-Men Ever number 4. There are probably some I've missed, but, you know, I think it gets to count as a trope at that point. That's, That's a lot. Oh, it absolutely is. But while everyone else is playing baseball, there are two X-Men notably missing. Those are Scott and Jean who ride up on dirt bikes to yell that there will be barbecue later. It's really deeply baffling. They're trying so hard to be the cool parents. And failing so profoundly. I mean, listen to this as Scott starts. Hey guys, barbecue over at the lake house after the pool party, okay? We're doing chicken and burgers and a whole mess of potato salad and corn on the cob. We even have Rice Krispie squares and floating islands. And they're just, like, dirt biking around as nobody's paying any attention to them. You know, I like X-Men Evolution, but I gotta say, having Scott and Jean be teenagers never quite made sense to me because I think they were pretty much born in in their 30s. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Plus, you add the fact that they're functionally 12 years older than they are by this point. Oh, right, because their minds were in Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix for a long time. Exactly. Now, no one pays attention to Scott and Jean, but you know what they do pay attention to? 
an enormous damaged sentinel falling right out of the sky. Um, they beat the sentinel up a bit more until it falls into some power lines and becomes visibly extremely distressed, which is atypical for a sentinel. And the sentinel explains that while it means no harm, it was an unarmed tactical surveillance sentinel that became sentient. And after being cut off from the Sentinel centralized communication net, it decided it needed to warn mutants and humanity about what its extrapolative modeling had predicted. Presumably, although it doesn't specify, this is Operation Zero Tolerance, and having thus obliquely warned them, it dies, and it's actually pretty legitimately sad. It is, yeah. Jubilee especially is really sad. Uh, That's something I always like about Jubilee, is that she is the character who kind of tries to act tough, but really also overall wears her emotions on her sleeve. I mean, I guess she does have a sleeve. Everyone's wearing tiny bathing suits, but she does have a sleeve. After some brief yelling about Wolverine killing Cable's son, followed by a lot of points about unity, everyone shrugs off the whole Sentinel episode weirdly quickly. They do, it's true, possibly because they realized that it was so unclear what it was about that they shouldn't worry about it. But as far as the Wolverine killing Cable's son Tyler thing... I like this. Like, we've seen this conversation here and there, and we've seen their bad blood from their his shared history mentioned before. But using this right here is a thing they have to get over because X-Men and X-Force are two teams among, like, a sort of larger mega team. That works. I mean, that's kind of what this era is about. Like, the center of the X-Men, Professor X, is gone, and they all have to figure out their shit. They all have to resolve their conflicts without him. They have to find purpose without him. And they've been with him for so long. I mean, he's been around since the beginning of the Muir Island saga. That was a long-ass time ago. Yes, but yeah. with with that resolved, it's pool party time. Sam attempts to film and is thwarted repeatedly, finally landing in the pool along with his camera. It's, it's really charming and fun. I love Sam as enthusiastic goofball. Like, he's just so earnest about everything. Also... Everyone's in tiny bathing suits. Of course they are. It's the 90s. But I really appreciate that Sunspot and Shatterstar in the same panel are in the tiniest little bathing suits. They're so tiny and they look so happy about it because of course they do. I feel like those are two dudes who would have to be significantly browbeaten into wearing swimsuits at all. <laughs> Probably true. Oh, man. I, you know, we never really see them interact all that much, even though they're on the same team. And I feel like we should see more of that. While wearing those tiny bathing suits. I feel like they would be really good friends and do a lot of really, really ill-thought-out things together. Yeah, it would be great. Like, they, they would just they would just be the kings of bad but fairly cinematic decisions. You know, there are worse appellations to have. Next up is barbecue. There's ping pong. There's resolution between Cable and Wolverine. Paige plays Pengrip, which I appreciate. Yeah, of course she does, because we know that Paige does her homework on, like, everything to be as good as possible, and so of course she'd do the counterintuitive way of holding a ping-pong paddle that apparently works better, even if I could never get it to work right. Normally, pengrip paddles only have um, rubber on one side, too, I think. Oh, I don't know. I mean, you can still do the pengrip with a standard paddle, right? You just sort of hold it, like, inverted? Sort of. Huh. I used to be okay at ping-pong. Never got past okay, because I could never get the goddamn pengrip. My dad plays pretty avidly. My stepdad does too. wonder if they've ever played together. We should ask. Seems likely. Anyway, it is genuinely charming. Everybody bonds, and they have a great big toast. Call and response. 
Here's to us and those like us. Darn few left. And I looked that up. That's actually from an originally slightly different quote by the Scottish poet Robert Burns, and that it was popularized in Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along, and more recently it was in a scene in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So uh, there you go. It's weird thinking of anything as having been popularized by Merrily We Roll Along, because I always think of that as kind of semi-obscure Sondheim. I guess I mean popularized outside of Scotland, where presumably Robert Burns was not as well-known. I don't know. I don't know much about poets. He's, he's pretty well-known outside of Scotland, Miles. Unless you only pay attention to media in the form of Sondheim plays. In which case, merrily we roll along. There's a big group photo, fireworks from the members of the team who have firework or firework-adjacent skills. Uh, Gateway also shows up, and no one's sure why, and it's never really established why. He's just there. I mean, he's got, like, a giant beard all of a sudden in this issue, so maybe he just wanted to show it off. But I love this picture part because I love that Cyclops organizes the picture like he's calling the shots in a group battle against a sentinel or something. Have you ever tried to organize a group that large for a photo? It's basically the same thing. Oh, well, I- I'm glad Cyclops is there to be in charge. And to be fair, it's a pretty cool big group shot. Psylocke's missing. I assume she's just, like, fallen into a shadow that she's licking somebody through, but everybody else is there. And even though the art's not amazing in this issue, I still just love seeing so many characters all together. It's fun. Yeah. Finally, Gene and Cable gently mind-meld everyone as a team-building exercise. Yeah, they, they, they all become these floating heads on a blank page after holding hands. At first... There is nothing. Then a cool, gentle wafting like a wind out of the east. A breeze bearing an astonishing babble of disparate thoughts and emotions. All adrift in confusion like conversations at a noisy party. And then the individual voices give way to an underlying chorus thrumming in some mental harmony. Singing a bright chord, a major fifth of the mind waves, reminding one and all of the tie that binds them together. The chord rises and decays, leaving an aftertone reverberating with an ethereal sensation of well-being, like the fleeting remembrance of an old friend long unseen or a lover's touch dimly recalled, brushing feather-like against the consciousness and fading away to an unnatural quiet. So I know this issue is not Larry Hama's strongest, but that right there. Wow. I love this. This issue feels necessary after something like onslaught and this scene in particular just this this ritual of connecting just a little not going into anybody's deep thoughts but just reminding everyone that they're part of a community that they're part of this giant chosen family it's genuinely beautiful and then they all go home yeah they they end the night uh inside everyone's kind of restored And so, yeah, not a ton happens in this issue continuity-wise. Like, I guess there's some resolution to the Cable-Wolverine thing, but we get bits and pieces of that in other issues anyway. Well, and a sentient sentinel falls out of the sky with an obscure warning, but I guess they all forget that within a page. Oh, you know what? You know what might have happened? Maybe the Sentinel was the one that told Pyro about the obscure stuff, but it was so obscure that Pyro had to stay obscure as well. Or maybe vice versa. I mean, Pyro told a freaking priest. Maybe he told a Sentinel, too. He's just been telling everyone. Oh, jeez. Just stopping people on the street and inadvertently setting them on fire. Uncool, Pyro. Uncool. You know who are cool, though? Our listeners. And they've got questions. Monica asks via email... What are your thoughts on the new X-Men 97 that Disney Plus is planning? Right, yeah, Disney Plus is going to be continuing, like, so long later, 
the uh, X-Men animated series from the 90s, huh? Uh, I, I, have, I have a lot of opinions, but uh, Jay, what do you think? I am guardedly optimistic, but I'd still rather they did something new instead. Or if they were going to continue it, I'd personally prefer a second season of Wolverine and the X-Men. I mean, that was amazing. Oh, damn, yeah. They were teasing Age of Apocalypse for season two before it was canceled. But to be fair, the 90s series is is more iconic and better known. So from what I've read, it's going to be picking up where it left off at the end of its final season with Professor Xavier gone. Kind of like the end of Uncanny number 200. It's a good chance to show a different status quo for the team, which the cartoon seldom did. It's going to show them without a leader having to chart a new course. I'm kind of wondering how it's going to handle covering existing stories, though, because the first show had a little over 15 years of continuity to cover. I'm not going to count the Silver Age because they took almost nothing out of the Silver Age, but this show has 25 additional years after that. So it's going to be interesting to see if they really go for the more radically different eras. Utopia, Wolverine running his own version of the school, Hope Summers and the Messiah Complex stuff, and of course, Krakoa. I mean, Krakoa's the big one. We have an X-Men show coming out in, I think, 2023. Krakoa's been going for a couple of years and has utterly redefined the line. I mean, I guess there is going to be a new X-Men 92 comic specifically about a 90s take on Krakoa, which makes me think they won't go in that direction. But I don't know. Like, how do you think they should handle that, Jay? How do you think they should handle mining all of these eras that are way more different from one another than the eras tended to be back in the day? I'm going to quote Kel McDonald here or paraphrase Kel McDonald from a world building panel, which I think I've done before on the show, and say you change the things that get in the way of the story. Um, I think they should basically borrow the stuff that adapts well. Um change things where they need to. I am not, not, not a fan of overly fidelitous adaptation when it doesn't translate well to the new medium. Completely agreed. Uh, all of that said, um, X-Men 97, please skip the Draco. Just, just please. We, we don't need the Draco. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was really uncalled for as a comic. On the upside, Lenore Zan is coming back from her political career to voice Rogue again. So that's pretty great. Hell Yeah. Devin Tui asks via email, I was recently watching the Deep Space Nine episode, Time's Orphan, and during multiple points in the episode was thinking, huh, this writer was probably a big Ilyana Rasputin fan. For reference, eight-year-old Molly goes into a portal, is pulled out shortly after, only to have aged ten years and be kind of action-y, then at the end returns to the portal, saving the little girl Molly, but dying in the process. What moments of consuming other non-superhero-related media have stuck out to you in regards to really seeing the potential fingerprints of X-Men fandom in them? Well, this wasn't a surprise. It's very much an acknowledged influence, but I'm always going to go back to Bob Prohl's resonant duology as one of the best pieces of X-Men-inspired media out there. For real, yeah. Uh, also, similarly, the 2018 movie Freaks, which I quite enjoyed, it could kind of be called a superhero movie. It's really more of a sci-fi thriller, but it's very much about the whole hated and feared aspect of the X-Men. Plus, uh, Speed Racer, Emil Hirsch, plays the young dad of the little girl who's the main character, so that's pretty great. Um, it's also, oh, I always forget this, but the main character, or one of the main characters of uh, Carla Speed McNeil's Finder is inspired pretty heavily by Wolverine, specifically, by Logan. Um, and that's that's one of the things I love about finder is that speed annotates it very heavily in in every volume um and is very open about her influences and it's really really cool getting to look back and see those connections even if you don't pick up on them immediately 
yeah, listeners, if you haven't read Finder, it definitely requires some investment because it's a very complex comic, but it's so, so good. Highly recommended. If I had to choose a single favorite comic series, that might be it. Pretty good choice. Uh, speaking of favorites, one of my very favorite video games, Psychonauts. I haven't played the new one yet. I'm going to very soon. But the first Psychonauts, which is a game where you play a psychic Boy Scout who uh, goes inside the subconscious minds of people and like those are the levels. That always really reminds me of the first Legion story back in New Mutants, where the New Mutants and Professor X go into Legion's head, and it's like an actual mindscape they have to, like, traverse and go through. Um, Also, a number of other mindscape-heavy telepath stories in X-Men, but especially that one. Every time I'm playing Psychonauts, that's exactly where I go. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. It is the angry Claremontian narrator. Do you really believe that this is the calm before the storm, Alyssa Ritchie? Or perhaps you even think that you and Justin Velez have weathered the worst of things unscathed? Don't be ridiculous. You're not ensconced in a halo of peace before the worst hits. The worst already rages all around you. You're both just really, really damn oblivious. And the mic here goes to, sexy, as always, Shatterstar. Zaz vid, my comrades. I am told this pool party is a time of leisure, but it bears much in common with the gladiator pits of the Mojoverse, from its competitions of ping-pong and baseball to its detailed camera posing. But most of all, its inspiration of desire in its spectators through costume and display. Lacey. That Aloha shirt and those neon board shorts are colorful and stylish, but why would you hide the physical form you've worked so hard to perfect? A sheer and skin-tight body stocking would cause more heat in the loins of our companions than even the harshest of Mojo's battle pheromones. Try this on. Yes, much better. Behold the magnificence of your every throbbing detail. And Mark Paglia, while your old-timey bathing costume is indeed distinct, and the distinction does tend to draw the carnage cameras, it covers so much of your glorious and muscled flesh. Try the tiniest of swimsuits like mine and sunspots. Yes, they come in stripes as well. And now, your every buttock and thew are visible for all to covet. And covet they shall through blood and chaos if the season's programming requires it. With our new appearances, my compatriots, our ratings are sure to shine, and we shall postpone cancellation for many years. But for the longer term, perhaps there would be some who would marvel at a swimsuit special. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, it's back to the secrets of Black Air in the Pride and Wisdom miniseries. Music